Savage Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day despite the fact that there are many, many people out there who think that uh, we will have in the United States uh, the not-so-great experience of a long, long campaign. And remember, that campaign will go on for 14 months from now. I mean, really. We're talking about November, no, not the November coming up, but the November coming up next year. Can you imagine all of that if we have agreed that it's already settled it's just going to be Biden versus Trump. Those are the only choices. Uh, there's a voice of hope. And the uh, voice of hope is provided by Carol Markovich. And uh, she is a columnist at the New York Post. She is the co-author of the best-selling book, Stolen Youth, which is uh, about the indoctrination that is being done by young people in too many educational institutions. Uh, she has a new column that says the GOP primary isn't over, but don't let it ruin your life. Uh, Carol, thanks very much for joining us. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a great pleasure. And you mentioned that uh, it's over Trump supporters declare <laughs> with the assured enthusiasm of a Mets fan at spring training. It didn't work out so well for the Mets. Uh, right. I, not not going great for the Yankees either, but the Mets always have that unrealistic enthusiasm, I find. Right. Uh, but you're not expecting some uh, serious injuries here or anything like right. that. But look, Trump is ahead. I, I, I tried to write a column where I felt like I was fairly looking at the numbers and saying that while Trump is ahead, it's obvious that he's ahead. I, I don't think it's anywhere near over. We are months away from the first ballots being cast. And the idea that we should just cancel the election and just hand it to Trump is one that just does not make sense to me. Um, I have one singular goal, that is for Joe Biden not to be the next president. Um, I would like that not to be Kamala Harris or Gavin Newsom either. And I'd like to see Republicans fight it out, have a fair fight in a primary, talk about ideas, and then join together around the candidate that wins. Well, there's a, there's a piece today over at Bloomberg, uh, headline, Haley and Pence, mm -hmm. 2024 campaigns rise in polls despite DeSantis outspending. And they make the point that uh, Mike Pence and uh, Nikki Haley have both been rising, and they both uh, fare very well against Joe Biden. Pence wins by two points over Biden. Haley does better than any other Republican candidate, and she's spent some of the least money. She beats Biden 49 to 43 percent. That's a big advantage for the former governor from South Carolina, no? I, it is. And, you know, once again, I think that that's really testament to how the primary is just not over and it, it, it will go on. And, you know, there'll be candidates who rise and candidates who fall. Um, but the thing is, I want also to say, and I mentioned this in the piece, the national polls should be taken with a large grain of salt. What I would like to see is how are these candidates are doing against Joe Biden in Georgia or in Arizona or in Michigan or in Pennsylvania. Those are the states where these battles are really going to happen. And I think that Republicans should know that these 
polls, while, you know, look, if you're looking at a national poll with a six-point lead, that's really impressive. But most of these polls show a point or two really within the margin of error. And we don't have national elections. So Republicans who care about, you know, what the polling looks like against Joe Biden should look at... Yeah, should look at how that polling goes in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and those states that flipped from uh, from supporting Trump in 2016 to supporting Biden in 2020. Are you with us, Carol? Carol, you there? Uh, Jeremy, I think... Uh... Candidate win back. I, I think, first of all, Georgia is, is a state that needs to be central to the conversation. No Republican is winning the election without Georgia. Um, and... So when you look at these state polls, and I think that, it, it, again, it's too early for a lot of these state polls to really make a lot of sense. But as we get closer to the first rounds of voting happening in January, um, I think that we can look at the state polls and see who's really doing well against Joe Biden in the states that actually matter to win the election. I just I don't like the whole conversation around Trump is owed this. And we should just um, join with him. And I, look, I, I have nothing against Donald Trump. I'm not. It's, it's not an anti-Trump comment for me. It's more like I want to see a primary where uh, candidates need to battle it out before they go on and take on Joe Biden. Well, what's fascinating about the way that the situation has been set up, and I don't think this was anything deliberate. It wasn't conspiratorial, but. Uh, None of the crucial states, and and again, you can identify the crucial states as those six states uh, mm-hmm. that uh, uh, that flipped, that changed, and right. including Arizona and and Georgia, and Michigan and Wisconsin, and particularly Pennsylvania, uh, because assume that the Republican candidate is going to still win Florida and Ohio, and the Democratic candidate. Yeah. Uh, is going to still win California and uh, and uh, Illinois certainly and New York. Uh, mm-hmm. None of the the key states uh, for the electoral college are included among the early primaries. And I think the closest right. thing you have to a, a key swing state is Nevada, right? Yeah, that, that's also true. And so the primary process is already kind of a unique thing in and of itself. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think that the, the polling, again, closer to those actual elections will, will be able to tell us a better story. Um, places like Florida, you're right. There, I, I, I moved to Florida in the last, you know, two years um, because of Ron DeSantis' leadership. I think they're not flipping. You know, when we first moved to Florida, we got a, a flyer in the mail from the Republican Party saying, remember why you moved here, register Republican. And, I, you know, I thought that was fantastic. I think that other states that are seeing a lot of uh, people coming from the blue states to the red states should do the same. Um, and I, I think that once you have those kind of bigger states locked down one way or the other, the battles for, for the swing states are, are, you know, become obviously more important but also become um, just more pointed at the time of the primary. You have a a passage in your column, which I like very much. You say uh, uh, Trump um, uh, voters, especially those who in their minds have completely canceled the primary, should brace for the possibility that it won't be him and prepare to accept that without the accusations of cheating 
that have become so the norm. What do you think uh, the chances are of President Trump losing the election either in November or losing the nomination and not accusing his his victorious <laughs> opponent of cheating? Well, I would say slim, um, but I would hope that his supporters, and I'm not talking about, you know, the the hardcore, hardcore, will listen to anything supporters. I, I mean, the larger supporters who maybe want him to win, um, but also like DeSantis, also like Nikki Haley, also like other candidates. I want them to kind of face reality if he doesn't win. But I'm, as I say that, I also want the people who desperately don't want it to be Trump, the Republicans who really want a different option. I, I hear them. But if it is Trump again, they also need to kind of accept it and join together and, and beat Joe Biden. Um, and so for both sides, really, I, I see a lot of like Trump supporters saying things like, you know, Republicans should accept reality. Well, I'd like everybody to accept reality. And that's really the message to me. While touring for, for the book, and I mentioned this in the column also, I met so many families broken apart by politics. And I've seen recently just a, a, a spike in my world of kind of intra-Republican families being torn apart. One person wants Trump, one person wants DeSantis, and they're fighting it out. I, I, I hope that that doesn't happen. Well, let us hope so. Carol uh, Markovich, uh, her column, The Primary Isn't Over. We'll be right back on The Medved Show. show one of the issues that uh, some of the members of the Freedom Caucus there are about 20 members of the House of Representatives so about one out of ten of the Republican members of the House of Representatives who comprise the majority about that tenth of Republicans is threatening to shut down the government uh, basically to make some kind of compromise or deal impossible without specific commitments to rearrange the executive branch to <clears throat> prevent what, what they consider to be political prosecutions, and this at the same time that they want to initiate impeachment proceedings against uh, President Biden. The other thing about their goal in the House of Representatives is to cut off uh, funding to Ukraine, what they call the blank check to Ukraine. And, and of course, uh, not taking into context the extraordinary support, really, that, uh, that all of NATO has provided for Ukraine, including uh, some countries that we don't normally think of as wealthy or able to to make that kind of commitment. Today there was a very moving story in Poland about a family called the Uman family. It's a uh, family of nine who were devout Christians, devout Catholics, uh, very much Catholic activists. He was a farmer, he was a photographer, he was a writer, the head of the family. He risked his family's life to rescue Jewish people from death. And uh, toward the very end of the war, he was eventually in, informed upon, and the Nazis murdered uh, the man, his pregnant wife, and their seven children, plus eight 
uh, Jewish people, some of them elderly, that they were sheltering uh, to keep alive so they wouldn't become one of the three million Polish Jews who were killed by the Nazis. And uh, this is a family that has already been honored in the, uh, they have a, uh, in the Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, they have a, a special parade of trees that have been planted in plaques of the literally hundreds, thousands of people, many of them Polish, who, uh, who made sacrifices, including the ultimate sacrifice. In any event, these, this family, the members of the family, including the unborn baby, have just uh, been beatified by the Vatican. And they had a major ceremony with all of the Polish officials there uh, honoring where these these extraordinary people are buried. And uh, they are on their way to canonization, becoming saints. And, and again, uh, it's an extraordinary story. And it's part of the reason when you read it and you think about the sacrifices that are, that are being made by... Ukrainians right now against a similar kind of evil to what the Nazis represented. It's one of the reasons that I think that um, there are a lot of people who are ignoring one of the factors in this presidential race is that people are normally thinking, well, it's going to be either President Trump or you will split your votes for people who are running against Trump. On one of the key issues, which is the issue of providing uh, what is necessary to defend Ukraine and to prevent Putin from having a successful invasion, among the, say, call it the four finalists who have emerged. Because, again, Ari Fleischer was talking about it. Carol Markowitz, who we just had on the air, was talking about it. Basically, the serious candidates who seem to have some kind of viability to challenge President Trump are Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, uh, Ron DeSantis, and, uh, and then you have Trump. But in that group, there's a very big difference on foreign policy. DeSantis thinks that Ukraine is just a territorial dispute. Um, Tim Scott has not been strong on Ukraine. Uh, Nikki Haley has. And will that make a difference uh, when it comes down to making a choice for many people? I think it probably will. And I believe the polls that show that the overwhelming majority of Americans and the overwhelming majority of Republicans, rank-and-file Republicans, not members of Congress, are a very strong in uh, fearing and opposing Vladimir Putin and favoring the necessity, uh, recognizing the necessity of victory in Ukraine. Uh, Nikki Haley was on CNN with Jake Tapper and uh, had this to say about the most important foreign policy issue uh, before the government right now. Uh, listen. Some House Republicans, as you know, are fighting to strip $24 billion in aid to Ukraine out of the upcoming government spending bill. Do you think that would be a mistake? I think that you have to look at the fact that 3.5% has been spent um, from our defense budget towards Ukraine. That's just 3.5%. 
that percentage of GDP, 11 European countries have spent more than us. We know that Russia has said once they take Ukraine, Poland and the Baltics are next, and then you're looking at a full-on war. What we're trying to do is prevent war. That's a pretty good return on investment to prevent war. So I think that we need to continue giving them equipment and ammunition with our allies to win. I don't think we need to give them straight up cash. I don't think we need to put troops on the ground, but we need to finish this because it, we have to always remember a win for Russia is a win for China. They've made that very clear. And right now, China is our number one national security threat. Uh, and the conversation went on. So House Republicans should keep that Ukraine spending in the spending bill and should not separate it and should support it. Republicans and Democrats should not pull in Afghanistan. Don't go pulling out now. We, Putin is at rock bottom. We know that because he's getting drones from Iran and missiles from North Korea. We know that because they've raised the draft age in Russia to 65. Finish this. Biden has missed multiple opportunities to finish this. We need to make sure that we end this war quickly, that we finish it, but we do it the right way. We don't want a further war, and the only way we can do that is to have Ukraine win. And there's no one that wants the Ukrainians to win more than the Taiwanese, because they know that if Ukraine wins, China will stay away from Taiwan. And so, yes, I think Republicans and Democrats need to keep their eye on the ball, and that is let's finish this mission in Ukraine, and then we will handle Russia and China by just doing that. Okay, again, what I was thinking of listening to her responding very directly and I think very effectively to those questions, I think we can agree. Uh, imagine her debating Joe Biden. I'm not talking about her debating Kamala Harris. I mean, debating Kamala Harris is, uh, again, it's it's uh, that's like major league versus little league. But Joe Biden's president of the United States. Uh, how would it be to have that voice representing this country and our party? I think uh, something to push for for the greatest country in the world. We'll get to the great country rankings coming up. Thank you, President Bush, on uh, this anniversary of uh, September 11th. And uh, there, there's no question at all, actually, when you look at the way the world rallied to the United States. And it really was remarkable. Um, people all over the world watching the profound evil of that terror attack a rally to this country and uh, it's it's why it's fascinating to actually look at uh, what they call the US News and World Report basically this is a magazine that at one time was considered a conservative magazine I think it's much more in the in the nonpartisan leaning maybe to the center-left uh, orientation now but they do a lot about uh, rating different things. They uh, were famous for rating colleges and law schools and medical schools and graduate schools. They ran into some difficulty with that, and some of the most prestigious institutions are not cooperating with them anymore. 
So now you have things like the Wall Street Journal comes out with a rating of 400 top colleges in the United States. And uh, now the U.S. News, uh, it says that, uh, headline, uh, U.S. News unveils 2023 best countries rankings. And uh, the winner this year for the best country in the whole world, Switzerland has retained its top spot in U.S. News and World Report's annual Best Countries rankings, marking the second year in a row and the sixth time overall that the Central European nation, meaning Switzerland, has placed number one. The small landlocked country is followed by Canada, uh, number two, uh, Sweden, number three, Australia, number four, and uh, the United States of America, number five. The United States is down a spot from 2022 in the latest edition of the analysis, which was just released. Uh, European countries made up the majority of the top 25, holding 16 spots in the 2023 rankings. Germany saw the largest fall. They've been having trouble with their economy. Uh, among these leading nations, down five spots since 2022, while Australia and New Zealand saw the largest increases, both up three spots year over year. The best countries' rankings and analysis from U.S. News are formed in partnership with global marketing communications company WPP and the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania which, uh, by the way, did get ranked in, in the uh, top 25 among the best colleges that by the rankings by Wall Street Journal. The project is based on a global survey in which more than 17,000 people across 36 nations associated various countries with specific attributes, ranging from dynamic, safe, and a leader to cares about human rights to economically stable and committed to social justice. The survey this year contained 73 attributes in total and encompassed 87 countries. Uh, there are three countries that were included for the first time, Cyprus, Honduras, and Zimbabwe. Uh, they didn't do that well. Uh, they were the, included in the first time in the project's history after meeting benchmark criteria. El Salvador rejoined the list after dropping off the list in 2022. As part of the rankings package, U.S. News and its partners explored Switzerland's enduring popularity, shifting perceptions of New Zealand and Australia, and America's brand power. Listen to this. Switzerland has ranked number one nearly every year since 2017. This year, the country landed in the top 25 for each of the 10 sub-rankings that inform the overall best countries' rankings, and in the top 10 for half of them. This includes notable performances in three of the heaviest-weighted sub-rankings, entrepreneurship, Switzerland was number six, quality of life, number six, and social purpose, quality was number eight. Switzerland also ranked highly for cultural influence, number eight, and topped the list at number one in the Open for Business sub-ranking. Uh, this is fascinating. 
Uh, the U.S. moved down a spot in the rankings, landing at number five after steadily climbing from number eight to number four between 2019 and 2022. The United States was at or near the top in several sub-rankings, coming in at number one for entrepreneurship, power and agility, and number three for cultural incidents. Influence. How you can rank Switzerland as a bigger cultural influence than the United States of America seems to me ridiculous. Um, Switzerland is a terrific country. I mean, anyone who's spent any time in Switzerland, and I've had the great privilege of having a, a little bit of that. My my grandmother's sister, uh, my Tante Pauchen, and her family uh, uh, escaped Germany to Switzerland and have lived in Zurich uh, since before the war at the same time that my grandmother and her family and my mother escaped Germany. So uh, Switzerland is, is a wonderful country, but one of the things that I think ends up putting it first in some of these rankings is that it has forever been neutral. And uh, they remained neutral in World War II, which, uh, again, given the fact that Switzerland is made up the largest group in Switzerland, the largest group of cantons, which is the local form of government, are German-speaking. And then, of course, you have French-speaking Swiss and people who speak Italian and people who speak Romance, which is a, a language particular to Switzerland. The um, uh, top half of the overall best countries list was relatively stable year over year, with the exception of Germany that went down five places and South Africa that went down five places. All countries in the top 50 stayed within three spots of their 2022 rankings. And now what we've all been waiting for, the worst countries in the world. These are the 10 lowest-ranked countries in the world, according to U.S. News and World Report. Cameroon in Africa, Algeria in North Africa, Arab country, Myanmar, we know about some of the problems there, Honduras in Central America, Serbia, uh, the uh, dominant country from the old Yugoslavia, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, uh, sorry, Borat, uh, Lebanon, uh, Belarus, and the worst country in the world. Do we have a drum roll? I, I don't know how they don't include North Korea, but they, they list the worst country in the world as Iran. Yeah, <laughs> Iran right at the bottom. And Belarus, by the way, and uh, uh, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan are former parts of the Soviet Union. Uh, Lebanon, what a lot of these countries have in common is tremendous violence and uh, hostility and polarization and people killing each other in the, in the streets. And uh, again, uh, the situation in Iran, the lack of democracy, prosperity for uh, people like the Persian people who have such a, a long uh, history, a pretty, pretty amazing. Um, uh, Belarus, Putin's 
firmest ally being second to worst in the world, also worth noting. We'll be reviewing a film that isn't the worst in the world, but is it the Michael Medved show, uh, there was a column that came out. Uh, we're talking about uh, 23 years ago, 22 years ago. A column that came out in uh, September 11th, the, uh, the original September 11th, that we, we read on the air several times. We invited the columnists on the air. Um, a great guest. I'd love to have him back on any count. His name is Leonard Pitts, and he's a columnist who's syndicated, but he writes primarily for the Miami Herald. And you may remember he addressed a column to the hijackers, to the murderers, the mass murderers who killed uh, 3,000 Americans on, on that day that that's fascinating because there's so many people who have no memory of it because they were born too late. They were born after it happened or they were too young when it happened. But for those of us who remember, maybe you remember this column. Leonard Pitts wrote, you see, there is steel beneath this velvet. That aspect of our character is seldom understood by people who don't know us well. On this day, the family's bickering is put on hold. As Americans, we will weep. As Americans, we will mourn. And as Americans, we will rise in defense of all that we cherish. Still, I keep wondering what it was you hoped to teach us. It occurs to me that maybe you just wanted us to know the depths of your hatred. If that's the case, consider the message received and take this message in exchange. You don't know my people. You don't know what we're about. You don't know what you just started, but you're about to learn. And I do think that the world has learned. The the idea, and we we got into this a little bit when I we was speaking earlier to Ari Fleischer, the presidential press secretary under President Bush. The expectation was so universal among serious people that this was just part of a trend, that there would be more and more and more uh, September 11th terrorist attacks that once they had this tremendous success of knocking down these two symbols of America's strength and achievement uh, and those actually wonderful buildings, I know a lot of people were architecturally critical of those towers. But again, when you look back on them and you look back on images of those two buildings on the skyline, I think the Liberty Tower is terrific and some of the work they've done to replace it. But the, the point being that 
there was a a general expectation, and you remember there was that anthrax scare uh, that came right after September 11th as well, where people are getting anthrax in the mail. The the extraordinary achievement of the people who served this country, uh, including people in the FBI and the CIA and above all the American military to go after the terrorist cells to confront them and no it didn't end terrorism in the world it still occurs but my god what a difference the the idea that the ability to have that kind of coordinated attack that uh, paralyzed and I think changed our country for the better in some ways. And the, the ways in which it changed our country for the better was to recognize that what happened in the rest of the world, uh, where there are countries like all those English-speaking countries, Canada and Australia and New Zealand and the United States, that are up there in the best countries in the world. But it's not just language. It's shared values because you include, we were talking before about Poland and and saintly family in Poland that gave everything uh, to rescue innocents. Uh, that's also part of the values of the United States. And we should be proud of it and, and never be confused uh, about the the fundamental, the underlying, the unshakable and undeniable goodness of this country. Um, Kamala Harris, not talking about her undeniable goodness, uh, she was confronted about border crossings on CBS. She had, uh, remember she's supposed to be in charge and giving us a secure border. Uh, she had previously stated this was one of the great successes of the Biden administration. And uh, listen, this is uh, the vice president on CBS about how it's going down on the southern border. Clip 4.5. That migration data, according to CBP, is showing Gu migrants from Guatemala are up. Honduras, Ecuador, Peru. So when the border crossings went down earlier in the summer, the administration said it was due to your policies working. Now they're going back up as they did in the month of August. Does that show the strategy is no longer working? Absolutely not. What it means is that we have to stay focused on a number of issues related to the irregular migration that, again, we're seeing around the world and America is not immune. Okay. Uh, an effective answer? Absolutely not. Eric Adams, uh, another Democrat. Well, we will get to that. We will get to that because there's actually another film that people ask me about. It. Uh, most movies that we review, uh, people aren't curious about. But My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3 is a different story. The first film in the series, the original My Big Fat Wedding... Greek Wedding was the top grossing, officially top grossing romantic comedy ever released by Hollywood. Listen to the sequel to a sequel. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. 
Back in 2002, character actress Nia Vardalos wrote and co-produced a smash hit called My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Now she's back as director too, honoring her late father with a trip to his homeland in My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3, playing in theaters everywhere. We're having a reunion. We're going to Greece. Oh, yeah. I promised my dad I would find his best friend. Let's do it! This is one reunion we'll never forget. Well, the memorable cast is reassembled with John Corbett as the main character's husband and Elena Campuras as her now college-age daughter, who's a rising star in her own right. The movie's good-natured, warm-hearted, and occasionally funny. And those who enjoyed the first two films will like this one, too, despite its thin and predictable plot lines. Rated PG-13 for some mild sex references. Two and a half stars for My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. And uh, will there be a Big Fat Greek Wedding 4? Well, it depends on uh, how this uh, movie turns out, of course, financially. But my guess is, is they're working on it already. And they kind of begin to set it up. To, to set up our show for tomorrow, uh, there is a new poll which uh, is just stunning in terms of its impact. Because, you know, the state of California has been talking about literally paying out trillions of dollars of tax money to provide uh, reparations for slavery and for Jim Crow, even though there was no slavery in California. It never was a slave state. It was admitted as a free state and didn't practice slavery. Uh, but uh, the public reaction of California voters who are noted to be among the most liberal voters in the country, public reaction to paying out this level of uh, support for reparations, it's uh, something we'll have to confront. We're also going to confront the truth of a remarkable new book. The book is called Not Stolen, The Truth About European Colonialism in the New World. And we'll be speaking to historian Jeff Flynn Paul uh, about lie after lie after lie that has been told about the United States and about some of the other nations as well, Western nations as well. And then we'll also talk about the, the whole idea that there is desperation in the Biden campaign about third-party possibilities. So who are they worried about?